If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. We've been studying, if you've been with us the past several weeks in our series, Things I Wish Jesus Didn't Say, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever preached. It was taught by Jesus early in his ministry when he spent most of his time in Galilee, which is in the northern half of the, the nation of Israel today. And he zigzagged from town to village where he taught and he healed. And as a result, large crowds came out to hear what he had to say. And it was from these large crowds that Jesus would call people to go a step further and become his followers, his disciples. That means student. See, he, was, he wasn't interested in just a crowd. He wanted followers. He wanted students. People who would practice not only his, uh, who, would not, who would believe not only his message, but also practice his method. Now, some people, when they read the Sermon on the Mount, they, they oftentimes look at, it as, look at it in a similar way that they look at the Ten Commandments, or what we call the Law of Moses. It's sort of a list of commands. But the Sermon on the Mount does talk a lot about the Law of Moses, and he does reference the Law of Moses often in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's, it's more than a series of commands. That law of Moses was, a, was an amazing uh, gift of God to the, to, the, to the world. Given about 3,500 years ago to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, or what we call the law of Moses, really several hundred commands. And, and from there, God turned this, this couple million uh, group of former slaves into a powerful and thriving civilization. At one point, becoming one of the more dominant uh, civilizations in the world, all because of this incredible law code that was given to the people of Israel by God. It was by far and away the best law code ever devised in history, still is today, because that law code uh, spoke not only to actions, but also to, the, to intentions, not only actions, but also attitudes. Now, by Jesus's time, the Israelites who, who cherished that law code, who held that law code in high regard, had unfortunately begun to misinterpret it and even misapply that very law code. We have this happens in our, uh, in our day and age too. People take the teachings of Jesus Christ and 2,000 years later, they misapply them or they misinterpret them and they, they, put Jesus, they make Jesus saying all kinds of things that he never would have imagined saying. How does this come about? How do we get to this point? How did the Israelites get to a point to where they, where they, where they, where they got so off from, from the original language of the law code of Moses or the original intent? How did they get there? It was because they misinterpreted it and they misapplied it. So on your connection card, something to write down if you want to take notes is interpretation and application matters. Interpretation and application matters. Interpretation, a couple of keys to good interpretation. One, you got to assume that the Bible is true. All good interpretation begins with the assumption that the Bible is true. If you don't want to begin there, then that's another conversation, and that's okay. Not everybody starts there. But, but in order to, you have to get there if you want to properly interpret the Bible, because it's written from the perspective that everything in it is true and correct. So, 
We got we to gotta start there. And like I said, if you're new to it and you, you're not quite there yet, then, then talk to someone. I'm, I'm available anytime. Sit down. We'll talk about it. We'll help you get there. There is evidence. There is things that, will, that I believe will convince you that the Bible is the word of God. And once you get there, then you've got to accept that it is true. That's step one to good interpretation. The Bible is correct. It's right. Step two to good interpretation is context. You always got to read the context. I've already given you a little context in the Sermon on the Mount over the past few weeks, and I'll give you more today. But basically, the easiest way to think of context is whenever you read the Bible, read a little bit before and a little bit after, and that gives you the context. gives you a framework with which to understand the passage. You don't have to read a lot of Bible. You just have to read it properly. And context has, uh, is, is hugely important. Then lastly, background. Background's a little harder for most people, but in this day and age, it's actually become so easy because you can Google just about anything. Now, not everything on the internet is correct, contrary to popular belief. But some things are pretty good, and if you just Googled a passage of scripture and typed in background, you would get several articles that are pretty good. You'd pretty easily be able to decipher which ones are valid and which ones aren't, and they would give you a little bit of background information that's helpful to understand a passage of scripture. So we start with the Bible being correct. We start with, con- then we go to context, then we look at background. That's good interpretation. Now let's talk about application. What is application? Well, that's the doing. That's the putting into practice. So there's two great questions to ask yourself whenever you think about applying the Bible. After you've gotten to good interpretation, you've got a proper understanding. Then you ask yourself, is there something for me to do? Is this passage a command? Is it telling me to do something? Or is it su- suggesting something I should do or, or, or be? The second question to ask yourself when it comes to application is, is this a doctrine I should believe? You know, sometimes you'll read the Bible and you'll get it, you'll understand it in its context and you'll have a good interpretation and you'll even hear, oh, well, there's a command here, I need to obey that. But sometimes <clears throat> there may not be a command, but there might be a, a doctrine or an idea that you have to change. And that does happen. God's word sometimes is going to change the way you think about things. So that's good interpretation and that's good application. I hope today in our brief study of this passage, we're going to accomplish both those things. So now let's focus on our text for today. Matthew chapter 28, chapter 5, verses 28 to to 30. And we're going to focus first on the first two verses. And get a little bit of more. We're going we're gonna to dig a little deeper and get our interpretation down right before we move into application. So let's reread 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus here is talking about a command that does come from the law of Moses. It's actually number seven out of the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not commit Adultery. The word adultery literally means breaking wedlock. And in context of, of, of Jesus talking about it, it's specifically talking about sexual sin between married people or involving married people. Now, the thing to notice in this passage to help us with our context and to get our understanding of this passage down, you got a key on the first couple words of verse 27. He says, you have heard. Now, Jesus didn't say the law of Moses says or the Ten Commandments teach, or it was written. He doesn't say that. He says, you have heard. What that does is gives us an idea that Jesus is not addressing the actual command in the law of Moses, 
But he's addressing the current interpretation of the command in his day. You follow me? And so he's going to now address, okay, here's the interpretation you've been hearing from the scribes and the teachers of the law. Those are the people in Israel who were charged with properly interpreting the, 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 the law of Moses and teaching the people what it meant. And he says, look, this is the common way it's understood today. And, and what is it? Well, it was that the act of adultery was wrong. See, for the scribes and the teachers of the law and the common belief in the time of Jesus was that that it was a sin to commit adultery. However, they said nothing about the attitude of adultery. They said nothing about the heart behind the action. And so, according to their definition, according to their interpretation that was common in Jesus's day, you could consider yourself a righteous person and have all kinds of adulterous thoughts as long as you didn't act on it. It's the, old, it's the old saying that we hear, look but don't touch. We hear that all the time. Well, I can look, but I'm not going to touch. I'm window shopping, right? It's the same bad interpretation. It's the same bad theology or, or, or philosophy of life. So Jesus, in correcting that bad philosophy, that bad perspective, that, hey, it's okay to have wedlock breaking attitudes all you want as long as you don't do the actual act jesus says in verse 28 but i tell you and so what we're having here now is him giving his interpretation of what the law of moses really meant and and it's in contrast to what was commonly taught in his day as a matter of fact in the sermon on the mount there is five quick uh, sections. We've been going through them. Last uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about anger. We're going to go through them in our series, Things I Wish Jesus Didn't Say. But each one of those is a command of the Old Testament that, the, that currently in the, in the time of Jesus was being misinterpreted and misapplied, and he's correcting them. So this is just one of five things that he sort of picked on when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. So in verse 20, he says, but I tell you, now let me tell you what, how I interpret the law of Moses. And he says, uh, what, what does he say there in verse 28? He says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He now changes or, or, or contradicts the common teaching and brings in a new teaching, which he believed was the, the accurate teaching or the right teaching, which was that not only are adulterous acts sinful, but adulterous attitudes are sinful as well. In other words... If you're a married person or you're thinking of them, you're unmarried, but you're thinking of a married person uh, or, or, or I'm sorry, let me say it this way. A married person or someone uh, covet, you know, uh, looking at a married person shouldn't even act or even think about adultery. It's just not on the table. Right. Either one, neither the action nor the attitude. That's the point. That's the proper interpretation of this passage of Scripture. So I want you to write down on your connection card on the second line, married people shouldn't act or even think about being adulterous. You could, I know it's very small. Maybe you just write, don't act or even think adultery, something like that. That is, in its context, given the background, taking this passage as the Word of God, the proper interpretation. That is the right way to understand what Jesus is saying. 
So now we have good interpretation. So now what do we do next? Well, we move on into application. And, and I'm going to do something a little different today. In order to figure out a way to apply this, I, I, I have questions. I have three questions that came to my mind when I was preparing this message. Now, you may have questions, as often people do when they read the words of Jesus. There's oftentimes questions. What did he mean? And how, how am I supposed to do that? And did he really say that? Those questions come up. You may say, well, but what about my circumstance, my situation? I can't say that my three questions are going to cover all the questions. They're just questions I have. And then I'm going to share with you. And hopefully in the process of answering the questions, we'll also be able to discover a good, we'll further the interpretation, but we'll also be able to discover a good application of this, of this passage. How do we apply this to our lives? Now I have a disclaimer. Some of my questions might be, Uncomfortable. They might bother you. And I have to say, sorry if they do, but keep an open mind. And if I don't answer any of your questions, then talk to me afterwards. Because if we understand the principle, we can almost answer most any question that comes up as a result. So hang in there. It's not all over just right now. Get through it. And if you have more questions, we'll talk later. So let's look at the first question that came to my mind. What's wrong with lusting? Has he ever asked yourself that? Like, what makes lusting so wrong? I mean, if you don't actually act on it, how come it's wrong? Well, let's, let's define the term lust for a minute. Literally, the word lust means to have a desire for, a long for, or, or to covet. So if you take this definition of lusting, I know in the context here, we're talking about most likely sexual sin, but the actual definition of lusting is actually broader than that. It doesn't always refer to sexual sin. You can lust, you can desire after a person's wealth. You can lust or desire after uh, the, 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 a relationship that you see another married couple have that you wish you had. You can lust for a desire uh, uh, for things that are other than sexual. And so the idea of lusting is not necessarily limited to the concept of sex. It's a broader concept. It's not, and, and the second thing I want to I uh, uh, elaborate on is that the idea of lusting is not necessarily always wrong. Now, some of you may have gone to church your whole life and you would go, what? It's wrong. But, but the truth be told, it is not wrong in every circumstance to have a desire or to lust for someone. You think of a married couple. I would think it's actually a good, healthy thing between two married people to have a lust and a desire for one another. It's not wrong in that context. It's not wrong for us to lust and desire after God and have him in our lives. It's not wrong. It's not even wrong. And, and, if, and, if, and if you're very traditional, cover your ears right now. It's not even wrong for two single people to have a lust and desire for one another. What makes it wrong then? Well, the, the issue is possession. They say possession is nine-tenths of the law. The reason why it is totally appropriate and even, even good and healthy for a married couple to have lust, to have a desire for one another, is because they belong to one another. They possess one another. Remember, adultery is the breaking of the wed lock. And in that wed lock, 
that marriage relationship, that marriage covenant, it's completely normal and natural and appropriate for each person to lust after everything, including sexuality and wealth and status that that other person possesses because it's shared in that relationship. Now, what makes it wrong for a single people, for, for two unmarried people, when, you know, when, when does their desire for one another, let's say they're interested, they're dating, they want to be married, they better like each other, they better desire each other, right? They better have a lust for one another, but when does that go wrong? When does that cross the line? It's the same issue, possession. So that was my next question. What if neither of, uh, of us are married, or if two people aren't married, they're both single? Well, the principle applies. The principle of possession applies. You see, desire between two unmarried people isn't wrong in and of itself unless it involves something that doesn't belong to that person. So, for instance, when you're single and you are interested in another person and maybe they're interested in you, there's a mutual attraction, there's a desire there, there's a lust for one another, but that lust has limits because there's no wedlock. There's no marriage covenant. And so there are certain things that are not public domain. They don't belong to you yet. And therefore, it is inappropriate for you to desire them. Now, you may, you may desire that person for a lot of good reasons that are public domain. Their personality, their character, those things are out in the open. They're, they're public. But it's inappropriate for you to lust for them, for their wealth, their status, or, 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 or for your sexual appetite, because there's no wedlock. There's no possession between the two of you. So that's what makes adultery, or in this context, why Jesus said the word lusting, that's what makes lusting wrong. It has to do with possession. Does it belong to you or not? If it does, you can desire it all you want. If it doesn't, you need to respect that it's not yours. And that principle applies with both marriage and that principle applies both with people who aren't married. So let me give you two quick examples just to illustrate the point. And I'm going to pick on, on uh, Glenn because he's big and strong. <clears throat> I want you just to test this out. I'm being tongue-in-cheek, by the way. Don't take me literally here. It's a joke. I want you to go up to Glenn after church today, and I want you to say, Glenn, I'm going to tell you all the reasons why I'm lusting after your wife right now. See how he reacts to that. <laughs> That won't go over well, will it? And it shouldn't. If he's a husband worth his salt, and he is, that would never go over well. Why? Because it's not your property. You don't, it's not your possession. And I'm not saying Vicky's property, but I'm saying what Vicky has, what she brings into the relationship with Glenn, has been coveted. It's wedlocked to Glenn. It doesn't belong to you. And it's inappropriate for you to desire it when it doesn't belong to you. You don't have that relationship. And you can ask any husband worth his salt, and you can go to him and say anything like that about their wife, and any husband in this room worth his salt will punch you in the nose. <laughs> and they should. Now, let's use another example. Let's say two single people. They're not married, but they really like each other. And let's say the, the, the man courting the woman says to her, you know, I, I'm, I love you and I desire you. I desire you because you have a great personality, because you're very giving, you have a great character. Well, hey, that guy's going to win some points. That's going to move forward the relationship, right? But if that same guy says to that same woman, hey, I'm really lusting after your money. I can't wait to have your money. 
And oh, and you're famous, and that's why I want to be with you. And by the way, I have a, a healthy sexual appetite, and that's what I want you for. You're going to get a completely different response from that person, and so you should. Because those things aren't yours. They're not for you to lust after. So let's look at the last one. Somebody might say, well, if God didn't want me to look, why did he give me eyes? This is that, you know, you just hear these kind of comments, right? Well, I'm going to turn this one around because this is where we get into application. God gave you eyes and he gave me eyes so that I would desire what is rightfully mine. And I would protect what doesn't belong to me. In other words, Jesus' command, do not lust, is as much of an, a prohibition, I mean an admonition, as it is a prohibition. And I think this is something that we in our world today have completely lost sight of. We've completely lost sight of cherishing, of loving, of desiring, of lusting, the very things that we already have. We don't care for them as we ought to. We don't appreciate them and embrace them and cherish them the way we should. And God gave you eyes and he gave me eyes so that we would do that, so that we would love what we currently have and what rightfully belongs to us. The world would be a much better place if we would love what was ours. And we would stop lusting after what belonged to other people. That's why we have eyes. It's so that we can look at what we already have and be grateful for what's been given to us. And so it's not just a prohibition. Don't lust that Jesus is teaching and that the law of Moses taught when it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. It was not just a prohibition. It was also an admonition. That means do love. Do cherish. Do protect what doesn't belong to you. Be that guy. Not the other one that says, well, I can look as long as I don't touch. That's the environment. That's the community. That was the type of relationships that Jesus called people to have that wanted to become become his followers. That wanted to be in his family, in his family community of believers. That's the standard he put out there. He said it to the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount. But he was saying it as this is the standard that I have for my community. And so here's the thing I want you to write on your card. The last thing. This is the application. Don't lust for what's not yours. Rather love and protect what is. I know it's a lot. Hopefully you write small. But put it in your own words. Don't lust for what's not yours. Love and protect what is. So now we've had good interpretation, and now we've had healthy application. Proper application of the teaching. Now, as I said before, you may have had more questions, and that's totally fine, because we live in a world that doesn't, hasn't done this perfectly. And so there's all kinds of odd scenarios or unusual or out-of-the-norm arrangements that 
we've experienced. And you may have questions, and I want to invite your questions. Ask all the questions you want. Talk to the person that maybe invited you here. If you can't find them, talk to me. I'm happy to sit down because where there's a principle, we can apply it. And when we properly understand the principle, then we can properly apply the principle. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's go to the end of the passage. In verses 29 to 30, Jesus says this. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. Now, these two statements come right on the heels of the, of the principle of, 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 of not lusting, protecting what you have. Love and cherish what you have. Don't, don't lust after what you don't. Now, I, I know I have to say it because people misinterpret Scripture. Jesus is not being literal. This is not a literal command to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. How do I know this? I know this because people with no eyes and people with no hands can still lust. Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's an, uh, hyperbole. He's, he's making a, 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 a radical statement. Mm -hmm. The question is, what does the statement mean? What do these two examples mean? And what they mean very simply is that as bad as adultery, the act itself is, and we all know it is, some of us have experienced it. Some of us have witnessed it in, in, in our lives or, in other, or we've seen it in other people's lives. And it is devastating. Right. It destroys people. Yes. Well, so does lust. Mm. It's every bit as bad. And don't be fooled that it isn't. Our society wants to tell you that it isn't bad, that it's not a big deal. But it absolutely is. The lust for, for, for sex, for, for wealth, for, other, for possessions or whatever belongs to someone else but not you. And the lack of cherishing and loving what you have and the lust for what other people have is destructive to people. Right. And ultimately it destroys the soul. And Jesus says, cut it off. Whatever it is, cut it off. We're not talking literal hyperbole but it's a point that we can't miss that we can't go without that's how serious this issue is the adulterous attitude is every bit as bad as the act itself you know i began the sermon by talking about my nighttime routine and every night i go around the house make sure the doors are locked the windows are secure but in recent time, my routine has changed a little because I have teenage boys and sometimes they come in after me. I'm, I'm already in bed. And so I've added to my nighttime routine texting them. Please lock the door when you get in. <laughs> Why do I do that? Because I want them to know that what's in this house I cherish. I love. And I want to protect it. And I want them to adopt the same principle. Right. I want them to have the same attitude towards the family, towards one another. This is who we have. We belong to each other in this family, and we're going to love, and we're going to protect, and we're going to cherish one another. Amen. And we're not going to 
We're not going to lust after what we don't have, what's not rightfully ours. That's why we do it. And that's why I send that text every night, because I'm teaching them this principle. You know, I hope that this becomes something in Simi Church. Wouldn't it be great if this is what we as Simi Church are known for? That we're the kind of people that love what we have. Right. We love what's rightfully ours, what we possess, what belongs to us. We're content. Mm-hmm. And then we protect what isn't. Right. I think that that would be a light to the Simi Valley. Oh, yeah. If that was something we were known for, we would be a light to this, to this valley. Because there are so many people out there that, that don't understand this concept. They're even being told that this concept is wrong. The, 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 the common application is that, oh, love's for everyone, and we put no rules or no restrictions on it, and then it's okay, as long as it feels good, do it, right? And, and if you want it, go get it. And that's what's being taught and promoted and sold 24 hours a day oh, yeah. right. in Simi Valley and all over, the, all over this planet. Right. And, and it results in a lot of broken right. and injured and hurt families and people. Right. And we, if we would cherish this, if we would embrace this statement, do not lust, we could be a light to this valley. Right. So I hope you join me and join with Jesus in being the kind of people who love and protect what belongs to them, I mean, what they have, and protect what doesn't. At this time, we're going to prepare ourselves to take communion. It's a time to remember the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know, when you think about his death and his burial and his resurrection, in many ways it was the ultimate expression of his love for his possession. That's you and I, the people he loved, he died for. That's how much he showed his love for us. We we are considered his and he came and he died for us as an expression of his love, but it's also an expression of his protection, right. of his di- desire for us to be with him in eternity. Right. And so as we take the bread, as we take the cup, I want you to reflect on these things and on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. If you don't have a communion cup, we'll get some passed out. And what we'll do is we'll pray, we'll take the communion, and then we'll have a minute or so of silence where you can meditate, reflect on what Jesus has done for you and his love and desire for you and his protection of you. And then afterwards, uh, we'll sing a song to continue our meditation, and then Jeremy and Stephanie will come up and close us out, and we'll be done with our worship for today. Let's go to God in prayer.